Sing for joy. Sing for joy. Sing for joy. Sing for joy. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Sing for Joy podcast. I want to say a big thank you to start things off to those of you who have already been listening, who have already let me know you're listening and given me some encouragement along the way. I'd love to hear back from more of you. Let me know some things that are interesting to you or that you have interest in hearing more about as far as things related to the songs we sing and our worship. It's always great to have that feedback and interaction with your audience, uh, especially as someone who's used to being in a room full of people and being able to interact with them live. I think I've said it before, there's something just a little bit different about when you speak to a microphone and then send it out and you don't know who's listening, where they're listening, if they even want to be listening, all those different things. So again, just a, a general thank you to those of you who were listening. And something that I would ask of you all, please share this with someone else who would be interested in this subject. Uh, I'm going to, in the show notes, have a link to, we have a website set up. It's just a simple thing where it's got our logo and then the links where you can click and find the podcast in various spaces. Uh, But I'd love for you to share that with the people you know. Share one of the episodes that you've liked so far. as we continue to build this new podcast, this new space where we can talk about worship and worship songs and and all the different things, all the things, there we go. Uh, That's a lot in our intro, but here's here's what I wanna talk about today. Uh, I would love to just talk about the history of congregational singing, you know, because as I mentioned before, the congregation I currently work with and worship with, the Broadway Church of Christ here in Paducah, Kentucky, uh, they are part of a long history of acapella singing churches, but that are very focused on congregational singing. And the, the interesting thing about this is we are not the only acapella music tradition. We're definitely not the only congregational singing tradition that's out there. Uh, and so you may be coming from a variety of backgrounds. And so I just want to say off the top, I'm not going to be getting into the whole instrumental, non-instrumental or Church of Christ only type of stuff. Uh, I, I want to just talk about congregational singing in general. I want to talk about the joy of being together with a group of people and singing praises to God and kind of the history that that's gone through from as far back as we can can go sort of thing. And and I'm not going to try to do this like a, a music history course because I know that there are people who will devote semesters and years of their life to studying these things in depth. But I want to give us a quick overview. That way maybe we can all gain a little bit more appreciation for what we consider to be so normal now. Uh, we don't, a lot of times, especially if you are in a Western European, you know, historical area. So you're in parts of Europe, you're in parts of the United States and things. Congregational singing is not revolutionary. The The ability to get together in a building or in a park or in an apartment and sing together doesn't seem to be something that we should get too excited about because it's something you've always done. But that hasn't always been the case. And it's not just, oh, your government changed or different things. Sometimes even within the church itself, uh, that was not possible. And so 
That's why I think it's important to think about the history of what we do sometimes, not because we have to lean too much in it or we can learn some deep insights, but sometimes it's just an appreciation of how we got to where we are. And that's what I want to walk through with you today, this morning, whenever you're listening to this podcast. Um, But we know from the Bible that from the very beginning, God encouraged his people to sing. And we have record of them singing together. Uh, they, they would sing songs of joy. They would come together with shouts of acclamation. Uh, we have that from the historical references. Uh, even, even something as simple as, you know, we tell the story of Moses crossing the Red Sea, you know, and he's parted the waters and all the people have come across and usually we just kind of leave it at that. Wasn't that awesome? But it's interesting that the Bible references, they got to the other side and they sang a hymn. The women started singing a hymn and uh, Moses joined in uh, and they all sang together these songs of joy to God. Uh, it, It was a fascinating thing when you really start breaking those things down. There's records in the book of Kings where they sent the singers ahead of the army and let those sort of things happen. Into the New Testament, you have Jesus singing with his, uh, with his disciples when they had finished taking of the Lord's Supper, or of, at that time, the Passover feast, uh, and all these different things. So we have references throughout the Bible that singing was part of the worship. I mean, if you're familiar with the Bible, even in the slightest, you know that there's a whole book called the Psalms, where it's a collection written from lots of different time periods and lots of different people, but it was a collection of the songs that they would sing in worship, whether they were in tabernacle or temple worship times or in captivity in various countries. There are songs that were written while the Israelites were in captivity, but they were compiling their songs together. And so, When they gathered, whether it was they chanted these songs together or they sang them back and forth in a call and response format, there was a long history of God's people singing songs of praise to him. And I think that's important for us to realize that, you know, our singing is something that has a long history and it's been done, but it isn't always going to be done the same. Uh, Especially, like I said, we can sit in our modern worship settings and begin to think, this is how it's always been done. This is what singing has always sounded like. When, if we even go back a hundred years, and then you start going back two or three hundred years, you can very quickly find out the singing has not always sounded the same. There are some similarities, there are some drastic differences, but it's, it's always been there, but it has changed over time. And so anyway, trying to set that foundation of singing has always been there. God has encouraged his people to sing out. He has inspired men throughout the ages to write these songs. Um, It's interesting that even in a letter like 1 Timothy, uh, Paul is writing this message down. And from what we can tell, there's there's this passage in 1 Timothy 3.16 that we're quoting Psalms lots of times in, in the New Testament. But this section in 1 Timothy, Paul seems to be quoting basically an early Christian hymn. So he's reminding them of a song lyric. And they would, they would have been chanting that, singing that together in whatever style they found. Uh, and then even if you go to the book of Revelation, I mean, we have just 
phrase after phrase after phrase of these hymns of praise that the various beings are crying out and calling out and singing out to God in that setting. So even in this vision of heaven, we have songs as part of it, the singing of all of God's people gathered together. And so it's a wonderful setup that you have there. And it's funny because, again, I don't want to get into the whole idea of we do it this way because, and then use some proof text. I just, I'm trying to build an, an appreciation for the fact that we do sing together, but we're even told why that's important. You know, in, in the book of Colossians and Colossians 3.16, you know, we're singing the songs and hymns and spiritual songs, and it's to reach out, it's to teach, it's to admonish, uh, it's to encourage. It's all these different things to where we have the ability not only to be praising God, but it's a way of binding a group together with common language and instruction. Uh, and so that's a wonderful thing that we have that set up all throughout the Bible. But then once the Bible kind of goes out to people, we start to interpret it in different ways and different things start to happen with it. Uh, but even close to 100 years after the death of Christ, we start having people that are writing histories of the Christians and of people who follow the way or follow a man named Christ. And it mentions in almost every one of those that they are still gathering together and singing praises to him. Now, they don't always write down exactly what those praises sound like, but they talk about people gathering together and singing. So it's not something that has quit and it's something that has even flourished, and it's an identifying factor amongst the people who are following Christ, is that they, they get together and they sing hymns and praises to their God. Um, we have all of these different songs that start to come out. Sometimes we get writings and bits and pieces of it, but we don't have like notation for them, so you have to interpret them based on other historical things. But it's something that's very clear that we continued to sing. However, <laughs> however, when you start realizing the power that comes with group singing and people really start to do this whole teaching one another through song, people can also start to teach things that aren't true. Just like if someone gets up and preaches a sermon that may not have truths or can write a letter we could do a, another discussion some other time about how deeply songs sink into us and the reason they connect with our soul and everything, but that is definitely true when it comes to worship music. We're teaching these great spiritual truths to one another through song and they sink into us and they're the things we kind of hum as we walk back and forth to work. And you may be in a population of people who doesn't have the the opportunity to be as educated to where they're not reading on a regular basis, or maybe in these earlier times, they were not affluent enough to own pieces of paper, to own these booklets, these scrolls of the writings of all the different people. So they're depending on the things that they can easily take with them and tell other people. And a lot of those times you would have songs being passed back and forth. Well, the church started running into a problem where what they considered to be incorrect teaching, and in some cases it was definitely just non-biblical teaching, were being built into songs. And the church's response, and this is like 
big church sort of thing. Uh, you could say it's the Roman Catholic Church, but it's a, a binding together of lots of different groups. And some were writing it down in specific council settings. Some were just putting it into practice in different ways. Again, I'm not going to try to go into like specific histories of all the different groups that are, that are around at this time. But there was a big movement to make worship singing less... Uh, in, in modern terminology, less open source, okay? Uh, we're no longer going to take just the everyday guy on the street or everyday lady in her home and let them write songs and then we'll sing them in our worship settings. No, they wanted to start professionalizing, really, the worship music that was being used. And so there's even, there's even one specific thing that came out of the, the Council of Laodicea in AD, AD 381. Uh, that's a, a big one that you'll see quoted a lot of times when you start studying this. And it, it puts it this way. It says, not only are we going to codify who writes the songs, but then they say, we're going to say who can sing the songs. And so here's what the little quote says here. No other shall sing in the church, save only the canonical singers who go up into the lectern and sing from a book. So to kind of simplify some of that language, what it was saying, and this was a very common practice accepted by many groups of Christ followers, okay? You had to be a selected singer. You had to be a trained singer. You could only sing the songs that had been pre-selected and put into the church book of songs, whatever that church book of songs was called at the time. It's not like the song books of today, okay? It's, it's a little more, this had a, a high level of process to it. They, they were selected very strategically and carefully. And so it was certain people could sing. They could only sing from certain places and they could only sing certain songs. Now, I admit that sounds like a great way to prevent wrong teachings from coming into your songs. Um, just to kind of fast forward a little bit, I can find you lots of songbooks that were made in the 18, early 1900s that just have horrible songs, not because they don't sound good, but because they really are just teaching somebody's thoughts. They don't have any connection to scripture. Uh, in fact, sometimes they are teaching very humanistic things through the songs using Christ language. So, you know, I can, I can respect a desire to really define what we're going to sing, but I mean, they put a lockdown almost on who and where and when. And so the typical worship service was you came in and you sat and you let the worship come to you. You didn't really participate in it. You weren't encouraged to sing them out in the streets or in the home. It, the worship music was for the worship singers, so to say. Now, I'm not saying that was everyone and everywhere and people didn't, you know, oh, they didn't go home and hum these songs or anything. But the church's teachings and what was very common across, again, many, many denominations, many different Church of Christ follower groups, uh, was this idea that the lay person, the average everyday worship attendee, was not supposed to sing. Uh, and if you taught against that, there were usually 
consequences for that. There, there was a man named Jan Hus who lived in Prague, uh, and this is in 1415. So, again, if, if it's in 381 that we first put into practice this, we're going to tighten the reins on who and where and when. 1415, so a long time after, thousand years after, this is still the common teaching. Now, from, from that whole time period, again, I'm not going to hit every detail. It would take far too long. But there are groups that pop up and would have this congregational singing, and they wouldn't quite follow that and these different things. But we're in 1415. And the majority of Christ followers are still under this system of you go to a space of worship to listen to worship singers singing those certain songs, all this different stuff. And so this man, Jan Hughes, he's teaching a lot of things that go against the norm of the church, so to say. He's, he's trying to really look at what the Bible is calling all Christ followers to do. And he goes, I don't see that happening. And one of the things that he actually was, was advocating for was bringing this congregational singing back into the worship. And he was really advocating for, we should all be singing these songs together. You know, he, he never really said, you know, get rid of the church choir necessarily. Uh, get rid of the people who are choosing these songs for us or that there should be specific songs we sing but he was saying we should really bring everybody into this uh, he was actually burned at the stake for you know the things he was teaching now again he taught a lot of things and was trying to advocate for a lot of things but one of the big identifiers was people who followed and were trying to kind of attach to the things he was teaching this this man they were identified by they did congregational singing. You know, they got together in different places and all sang together. And, you know, again, there were other things with that. But that's, that's a scary thought to, to think, oh, you could be singing in a group and that could be, you know, punishable by death. That could be something that people are going to really fight you on. Uh, it's, it's scary for me as someone who likes to lead people in songs. Uh, but anyway... So he, we have this whole thing for advocation of congregational singing, and that idea and many others start to catch on in other spaces. And then we have what we now call the Reformation era, okay? So we've got the 1500s into the 1600s, and there's a lot of different things changing, but one of the markers of many Reformation churches is they started to bring back congregational singing. Now, many of those groups still had a group of trained singers. They still had uh, men who were dedicated to writing the music, and they were very carefully selecting the music, but they wanted to involve people back in that process. So when everyone came to worship on those Sunday mornings, they were all encouraged to sing. And, and that started to reach out to a lot of different places. It was not without its hiccups and issues along the way. I mean, there were still lots of other men. There were lots of other groups of people that were persecuted, not just for the congregational singing, but for many of the other teachings that were coming along with that. But you see a resurgence of congregational singing, people that wanted to bind together. Uh, you can see a, 
a, a really strong tradition of this growing in the British Isles. And so there's a lot of groups that were in England at the time that started having this congregational singing identifying them. There were a lot in Germany that were doing the same thing and they started to pop up in lots of other places there in the, the Western European countries. Now, again, I'm not gonna try to cover the entire world, okay? If I wanted to cover how the church was still growing in you know, Israel, Middle East, and then further to the east in, in the China and, and Japan, modern areas, uh, that's a whole different discussion with its own special and important history. You start going into Africa and South America, Central America even, you're gonna have a lot of different histories there that are influenced by the various Christian groups that, that were trying to reach out and proselytize and be missionaries in, in those areas. Uh, so know that I'm focusing specifically on this Western European history because many of the things that happen here in the United States are built on that influence, okay? And so since that's the context I'm in, that's what I'm gonna cover right now. But know that I'm not uh, just dismissing or ignoring the others. It's just the strain that I'm gonna follow right now. There's my little caveat there on the rest of the world. But anyway, so we've got the Reformation happening. More congregational singing is growing. That's a really big thing that's happening and we're deeply appreciative for it. It's also around this sort of time in the 1600s, the late 15, early 1600s, that you start actually getting congregational songbooks. Like I said, for the longest time, it was the music that was purely held in the church building for the singers, you know, whether it was something written specifically for that week's service or it was a communal congregational song that they, or uh, the choir song that they would sing as an opening or an exit to different worship services. It wasn't something that was just being published for everyone. And so here in this time period, again, whether it's, you know, some of the German songbooks, you have the Scottish Psalter emerge in the mid-1600s. Uh, before then, there were some other songbooks that were part of the Puritan revival sort of uh, things that were happening both in England and eventually as they headed over into, into the New World, into America. And they were starting to bring together a lot of the songs that they sang on a regular basis. And a lot of those started having the written notation with them as well that was being used by everyone. So you now had a real common language in these congregational settings. And so people were able to bind to that. Uh, it's, I've always loved the Scottish Psalter because it was one of those books that they had quite a few tunes written out. So like the melody of a song. And then they would have the words underneath and so you could flip back and forth and add different sets of words to that one tune. So if your congregation only knew, you know, bum, 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 well, we can set a lot of different words to that. We can teach a lot of different things using that same melody. And so that was a really fun songbook for me. I, you know, when I study history, it you can just mix and match sort of things. Uh, and it's a really simple thing to use. Uh, there were lots of other songbooks that were being written and, and used. But again, it's just this resurgence of congregational singing, a desire for everyone to be able to join in to this thing that is a long and storied history for people who follow and want to worship God. 
And so these songbooks are being written. They're starting to be disseminated. They're starting to kind of free up the songwriting process. You start getting more quote unquote lay people writing songs. They're taking tunes that they heard from the bars and the taverns on the, on the different highways. And they're going, hey, I like that tune. I'm going to put some more wholesome, some more Christ-centered lyrics to it. And so they would be adapting songs and you would mix those into as well. So not only is congregational singing starting to be something that binds people together, but we're also loosening up who is able to sing, who's able to write the songs, where these songs are going to come from. I mean, lest we start talking about the difference in uh, the meter of the songs, you know, and, and things like that, that we'll probably talk about in other times, you know, what made a quote-unquote church song. Uh, but it's becoming a much more, I don't know, a democratized system. It's something that's open and available to lots of people. Now, did that cause its own problems that we saw way back in the early 80s? Yes, absolutely. You started having the same thing of there was some some teachings that were not so biblical. You had songs that really weren't Christ-focused, but they were a good, nice poem, you know, sort of thing that made people feel good about the place they were or their family history, you know. So you, you have those struggles that always are going to arise no matter what the time period, but you have that, that desire for people to sing and people are wanting to be part of it, which is always great. I mean, if you're always dependent upon and trusting on the, the professionals to take care of that sort of thing, you really lose, you lose that spark of when people come together to worship God. You know, if they come just to hear someone sing, yeah, you connect with that in one way, but we're really not binding together in worship. If you're just going to listen to the choir and you're going to sit back and let it wash over you, you know, there may be reasons and times and spaces for that to happen and it be very impactful. But again, if we're all going to lift our hearts and our voices in praise to God and we're going to exhort one another, you know, we're going to encourage one another, we're going to teach one another, we have to be doing that together. And so I really appreciate this time period and I've got lots of different songbooks that I can pull out from the 1600s forward and you can see this kind of growing wealth of songs that everyone was starting to sing together and we'll talk some later like i said about how these songs were written and what exactly went into these songs and maybe some more about the debate of what constituted a worship song what was a proper use of the psalms in your singing but I love that songbooks become a thing. Now, songbooks become too much of a thing later on in the 1800s, mid-1800s into the early 1900s, uh, because now it's not just, oh, this is a congregational songbook that contains our common language, but it starts becoming something that we can make a lot of these copies and we can sell a lot of these things. And so there becomes a bit of... Uh, well, it's just influenced by money is the simple thing to put. We're no longer, there was a time period where we weren't really focused on wanting to get good church music out for the congregation to sing, but we were focused on selling the books. And so uh, I love my 
you know, four part men's quartet singing, love it. But there was kind of a, a connection to it for a while that it was, you got the best quartet together you could because they could perform the arrangements of the songs you had in your songbook. And so there's kind of songbook wars that happened during that time period. Uh, now, congregations benefited from that in that there were some really high-quality songbooks that came out that had the latest and greatest songs, or you had some songwriters that were really good that started cranking them out and putting them in there. And Anyway, there's a lot of things that go with that, but there was some issues <laughs> with, the, with the rise of songbooks, especially here in the United States, um, that we kind of fight against. And there's still a little bit of that today, you know, oh, you've got the songbook that's only the second printing. You know, the third printing, that's got another 35 songs in it. You really should have that songbook. And congregations will struggle with their budget to get new songbooks. So there's an issue there. But that, that's a little off topic. What I want to stay... <laughs> anyway, there's a long history to that one. Anyway, uh, what I want to stay focused on... Focused on is that congregational singing was really taking hold, especially here in the United States. We have the sacred harp singing. We have the New England singings, you know, from the, the Quaker and Puritan, Puritan traditions. We have the rise of these strong four-part acapella singing churches that are happening. Uh, you know, they're kind of in the, the Tennessee region and then spreading out. Uh, there's, there's a lot of things going on there to where now we don't even question that there are going to be musical arrangements of a song that are accessible to everyone, that when you come together, you can sing. When you come together, everyone is welcome and encouraged to sing, and that no one's going to fight you on it. No one's going to come back on you and say, no, you shouldn't be singing. That's only for the professionals. Uh, now, we, we have a little bit of that coming back because of the the commercialization, again, of recordings, whether it's an acapella group or it's something on, on a Christian radio station or whatever, and people feel like, well, I don't sing like that. Well, I can't sing my part exactly, you know, and all these different things. So we still have moments where we fight against that personal insecurity that may stop us from singing all congregationally, but there's nothing kind of corporately, there's nothing big government sort of thing that's stopping us from singing together. And I think that's only to our benefit. We can only grow closer as we sing these songs together. Now, we again, I want to talk more later about what songs we sing together and why those particular songs may be chosen, uh, why certain songs are part of our long hymn history. You know, what made it a classic hymn? How did it make it out uh, along some other ones? Uh, but for now, I just wanted us to think about kind of how we got to this point. How did we start singing congregationally together? And why is that something that we should, we should benefit from? Because again, if we, if we go back, even once the church started being okay with everyone joining into the songs, even once the majority or many Christ-following groups were like, yes, we benefit from having everyone sing together. There's been time periods and there are countries and there are places where that's still not okay because it is such a public 
outpouring. It's not something you do quietly. You know, sure, you can whisper and sing, but if you have 10, 15, 20 people whisper singing together, it's still loud. <laughs> you know, to, it's still going to catch people's attention if they're, if they're paying attention. And so, you know, I've been to Germany and talked with people who lived through you know, various wars, you know, World War One, World War Two, you know, and then they were behind the, the Berlin Wall and different things. And they talked about how it was a scary thing to still get together and sing sometimes. Uh, you'll hear stories out of, uh, out of China where they talk about they can't sing together in various places because it will catch the government's attention. And you'll hear that, that same story echoed throughout history and throughout the world when there's various people that are under oppression. And so I again want us to be thankful for the fact that, you know, here at the Broadway Church of Christ in Paducah, Kentucky, we can get together anytime we want. But on a Sunday morning, when we gather together to worship God, we can sing as loud as we want. We live stream our services and send it out across the internet and anyone can watch that and no one is going to like fight us. No one's going to be upset with us and shut us down for singing together in praise to God. You know, now that's not saying that individuals may not like it or certain groups may be upset by it, but there's nothing that's encumbering us. There's nothing that's telling us that we can't do that. There's nothing that's saying we're fighting against something. And we're very blessed for that. And I think because that has become our norm, sometimes we don't show our appreciation for it. I mean, when was the last time you really said a prayer, not just, you know, dear God, thank you for letting us come together to worship today, but dear God, thank you for letting us sing together, letting us combine our voices in praise to you. Thank you for giving us people who have written songs that have a desire to tell your truths, that put your scripture to work to music so that we can put it in our hearts and carry it with us throughout the day. When did we really think about those things and how much of a blessing it really is and how that has not been the case throughout history? You know, God wanted us to sing from the beginning and various things throughout time have stopped us and maybe we're the ones standing in our way of ourselves now. So a little appreciation for congregational singing. I, I know this went a little bit longer and I, I went on a few tangents that maybe I'll explore some more later. But I, again, I love congregational singing. I get people together in my house to sing together. I get people together at the church building. Uh, I loved being at camp when you could gather together under the stars and you didn't have a songbook. So even that was out of your hands and you were just singing whatever songs you could remember. Uh, and some of those are the ones that you appreciate even more. And you just poured them out together in the open. Uh, so I love singing. I know I've said that a lot, but I really do. And hopefully you might have heard something that sparked your appreciation for it a little bit more. Maybe there's a story that you've heard that you're like, oh yeah, that makes a lot more sense now. Uh, maybe you didn't know that there was a time period when congregational singing was, was banned, essentially. And so because of that, I'm very thankful for the time period I live in. I'm thankful for the 
tradition that I'm part of that values this congregational singing because I've even talked to fellow Christians uh, who were in other faith traditions or uh, who had been part of other congregations and they would talk about how that wasn't the norm. You know, even, even though they were all welcome to do it, it wasn't really something that everyone joined in together. And so they they recognize the difference when you come into a congregational singing group where they really have that desire to all sing together. And so I want you to think about that. Think about where you are and how you've been part of churches or haven't been part of churches, if that's your, your uh, background, that really valued singing together and why that was important and how that was useful. Um, so anyway, I'll just leave you with that. If you've got a story of maybe yourself or a family member, or if you've done mission work in various places where congregational singing wasn't possible currently or in a time past, I'd love to have that story. And maybe I'll share it in, uh, in a future podcast sometime. But thanks again for listening and y'all have a great week.